If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Margaret Cavendish has been largely forgotten. And when she has been remembered, she often divides opinion. One of England's first female philosophers, professional authors and scientists... This 17th century writer challenged convention throughout her life. Speaking to Lauren Good, Francesca Peacock, the author of a new biography of Cavendish, explores this remarkable and often complex woman. Hi, Francesca. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Lauren. It's so lovely to be here. I'm so excited. Your new book, Pure Wit, discusses the complex and largely forgotten woman, Margaret Cavendish. Who was she? So Margaret Cavendish was a woman who probably very few people have heard of now, but I believe she's very deserving of a much wider audience. She is one of England's first female philosophers, authors, professional authors and scientists. So she lived between 1623 and 1673. So she lived through the outbreak of the English Civil War, all of the later fighting. Her family were very involved with the fighting. She then went into exile with Henrietta Maria, who's the wife of Charles I, as one of her ladies-in-waiting, and then spends lots of time in Europe, on the continent, because of the wars, eventually comes back at the Restoration in 1660. And it's here where her career really takes off. She's been writing since 1653. But when she returns to England, all of a sudden, she's kind of like an early modern celebrity. And then she dies in 1673. So still under the reign of Charles II. 
It can easily be assumed that these largely forgotten characters were on the margins of history, but this is far from the truth in the case of Margaret Cavendish. Could you please situate her in the context of the time? If we were sitting here in London in 1667, absolutely everyone would know who she was. She was a kind of celebrity, very, very well-known figure, but she wasn't on the margins at all, really. She came from quite a wealthy family, the Lucases, who lived in St John's Abbey in Essex. Um, the Abbey's now pulled down now, I think. And her family weren't aristocracy, but they were very wealthy. They had money for a few generations from different court appointments and stuff. And then they were very royalist. So at the outbreak of the civil wars, her brothers all end up fighting. She gets sent into exile as a lady-in-waiting with Henrietta Maria. And it's here. So she's already involved with the royal court. You know, she's in Oxford. When they move there, they to camp there and then she goes all the way over to France in a very scary boat journey very horrible and it's over there that she meets William Cavendish who later becomes the first Duke of Newcastle at the time it's only a Marquis and he is a civil war general an incredibly well-known one at the time you know would have appeared in propaganda appeared in different etchings and everything he's about 30 years older than her and she ends up becoming his second wife and it is through him that she becomes connected to a whole web of like very intellectual aristocratic milieu so he's the grandson of Bess of Hardwick so the woman who's responsible for the construction of Chatsworth House and is related to the rest of the Cavendish family and through William Margaret enters like this intellectual milieu so she becomes connected to Thomas Hobbes, Ben Johnson and really begins to write very seriously. And Margaret was not only at the centre of so many historical events, but she made sure everyone knew she was there too. You begin your book with the first performance of The Humorous Lovers, a play everyone believed was by her, though it was written by her husband, William Cavendish, who you've just mentioned. Why is her presentation at this play so memorable? Oh, I love this story so much. So it's completely brilliant. So imagine everyone sitting in this theatre and all of a sudden a woman turns up and she's sitting in the box and she has her dress is cut to below the line of her nipples, which have been like rouge and have tassels attached to them to draw attention to their colour. And she's sitting there bowing and waving to the crowd from there. But that's not all. So there is one letter which is currently in the Bodleian, the library in Oxford, and it's from a man called Charles North. And he's writing to his father about seeing Margaret Cavendish at the theatre and he says she is now the discourse like everyone's talking about in the town she's the subject of every gossip he describes the nipples he describes the tassels which other people had mentioned a couple of times that she was always wearing really outlandish clothes but he also says that she entered the theatre incognito in a chariot pulled by eight white bulls um, so how you can enter incognito if you've got eight white bulls is slightly beyond me and it's debatable whether we can actually believe him but I think what we really can believe is the sense of myth and mystery around this woman she had become something that was larger than life and even sources in the moment were kind of forgoing real historical details in the delight of describing her as this kind of miraculous mythical weird wonderful woman and in what other ways did she challenge expectations with her fashion so this is something that she does throughout her life. So we have one resource which is called, uh, it's her autobiography, and she calls it A True Relation of My Birth, Breeding and Life, which I think is a great title. And in it, she's talking about how she saw fashion, she didn't really like toys as she was growing up, but she saw fashion as if it were like toys to adorn myself, she says. So she saw it as an extension of her creativity. She really hated wearing clothes that other people had designed, and instead wore clothes that she designed herself. In one moment, both her and her husband were very poor in Antwerp, I think it is, and he says maybe we should pawn some of your clothes in a bid to like get some of our money back and she refuses and instead they trade some like tiny silver trinkets and stuff but she always wore incredibly outrageous clothes so they're always very like bold dramatic Samuel Pepys at one moment says that she's always wearing like 
a mixture of black and gold. She even perhaps got a reprimand from the Lord Chamberlain at court for dressing her servants in affected black velvet caps, which I think is a most brilliant detail. But her fashion was always really slightly androgynous. She would often wear clothes that were more associated with men. In one occasion, a man describes coming across her and she's wearing a huge hat, and then she bows to him rather than curtsies. In another occasion, John Evelyn, who's an restoration diarist and essayist and also a botanist, describes meeting her at the Royal Society in 1660, and in a poem which is now attributed to him, he says that she looked like a cavalier, but that she had no beard, and because she was wearing like a masculine coat and a masculine hat. So her fashion is really groundbreaking in a number of different ways. I mean, cross-dressing was a thing which was happening a lot during the early modern period, and I think we need to understand that. It wasn't necessarily as radical as it may sound, but she did it in a way that did draw attention to itself and did interest a lot of people. And we would naturally expect someone who draws attention to herself like this to be an extrovert. Would we be right in thinking this? So it's such an interesting thing. So she's a woman who draws attention to herself throughout her later life, is always holding court in her bedroom and getting loads of people to discuss philosophy while, you know, in the evening after they probably would want to be doing something else. Incredibly attention-seeking, loved being known as a writer and an author, but also in her autobiography and throughout her work, she's always describing herself as very bashful, which means for her she was incredibly shy. So in one of her plays, which is describing life as a lady-in-waiting, she describes there's like an autobiographical character called Lady Bashful, who only ever says like no words on stage, just sits there. And she also describes that her husband liked her despite the fact she was so bashful that she was too scared to speak to anyone. And this kind of shyness was paired with what can only really be described as an extreme anxiety. She writes in her autobiography about how she used to wait outside her favourite sister's room while she was praying, listening to hear if she breathed, because she was so scared she might have died. How she was so scared about her family that she was always checking if they were okay, never really felt happy apart from when she was with them. And it's really tragic and really poignant in a way because she writes this about her young life. And then after the outbreak, of the English Civil War, she does move away from them and then later go into exile and on a number of occasions doesn't see them again or if she does see them again, they're very close to death. So it's really, really sad and I think a very interesting and like dual-sided nature to her character. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. From early on in her life, as you've mentioned earlier, Margaret wrote often, you describe her in your book as a revolutionary writer. Why was her work so radical for the time? 
Yeah, it's such an interesting question because I think now we really don't see why it would be so radical for a woman to publish her book. But in 1653, Margaret comes back from her exile in Antwerp because her husband's estates have been seized. So uh, because he was a royalist and the parliamentarians were in control, they had seized his all of his estates and all of his money because he was a delinquent. She has to go back because the wives of those whose estates had been taken could like plead to have some of the money back because they were their dependents. So she has to come back and she comes back with her husband's brother. She ends up not getting any of the money back, but that's a whole other story. But while she is here, she publishes a book in England. So it comes out with printers who are based in London, somewhere in the churchyard around the old St. Paul's Church. And at the time, so this is 1653, women publishing books was just not something that really happened. There had been a couple of quite famous examples. Amelia Lanya, who is a woman who had published a book of poetry and religious texts which were dedicated to other women. She probably wanted to be her patron. And in one really brilliant poem, she argues that it wasn't Eve's fault that man fell, which is brilliant. And Lady Mary Roth had also published her version of like a prose romance called The Urania. But Margaret Cavendish was the first for quite a long time, first aristocratic woman to publish her own work of literature rather than like mother's advice to children or primarily like religious literature because it's the civil wars we have a huge uptick of women who are writing uh, like prophecy or prayers but Margaret Cavendish doesn't do any of that she writes poems about atoms poems about fairies poems about her family and poems about her life and publishes them all under one title which is poems and fancies and has her name on the front so if women were publishing at the time they very often did anonymously because the threat of I think we don't really understand now how often people were really scared of print in a way. So kind of scared maybe isn't the right word, but very wary of it as a medium. So people still circulated things in manuscript. And that wasn't very, it was still a form of publication because people did see it and occasionally it went beyond your control. But print was associated with so many things. So there are poems kind of associating it with prostitution, with being a woman in print. So the idea that even for a man, printing was something which wasn't quite right for his gender. And it was seen as being like on the stage, very similar to that in a way, like bearing yourself in front of all of these eyes. And Margaret Cavendish comes out, A, as a woman, B, as a woman who is meant to be in exile and is without her husband. C, is incredibly poor at the time. So this is a whole other thing. She probably couldn't have paid for publication and that was normally how it worked at the time. It's not really self-publishing, but you did have to, if your book wasn't guaranteed to be a success, you would normally have to pay. But we can't really prove that Margaret did because they had absolutely no money at the time. And she does it all with her name in huge letters on the title page, almost as big as the title of the book itself. So it's a huge display of herself. It's a statement of dramatic confidence. And you also explore her depictions of lesbian desire in her literature. Could you please discuss this for our listeners? So in 1653, she starts off with her poems and fancies, which are mostly about atoms, fairies, the war and her life and her family. And then later on in her life, she begins to publish collections of plays, which are brilliant. And she publishes two full collections of plays. And her plays are very, very different to what was being staged at the time. And one of them is The Convent of Pleasure, which is a play about a group of women who retreat into a female-only separatist utopia. So they retreat into a convent uh, away from men who might want to, you know, court them or anything. And it's a beautiful convent so one of the brilliant descriptions is how they're going to fit it out with gorgeous silk they're making it all literally 
beyond gorgeous, uh, really soft. And it's always describing it as a very soft, loving, peaceful space where nothing bad could happen. And it's meant to be beautiful. It's not meant to be an austere place of like, it's not meant to be a nunnery or anything. It's meant to be really genuinely beautiful. And while they're here, they start performing plays, singing songs, discussing. And one woman enters and she says that I really need to be here. I also want to retreat from the world of men. And the main woman in the Convent of Pleasure is called Lady Happy. And she says, okay, of course, come join. And all of a sudden she realises that she's falling in love with this other woman. And she at one point says, why can I not love a woman as if I were a man? They start acting in a play together in which they start embracing as if it were a couple and they become very very close and it's kind of a depiction of lesbian desire in a way I mean it's not just cross-dressing it is depicted as if it were a woman loving a woman and then the tragic end to the play is that the woman who had joined the convent and who Lady Happy has fallen in love with actually reveals himself to be a man a prince and Lady Happy ends up marrying him but she does not say another word after that point and goes silent for the rest of the play so it's a really really interesting play because often we're used to like depictions of cross-dressing for example in Shakespeare's plays or even like erotic titillation to do with women in other restoration plays but it's quite a radical depiction of it's not done for erotic intent because it wasn't even meant to be performed it is just done to explore the idea of whether a woman could love a woman as if she were a man and even they even describe in one of the songs they're singing about uh, oysters are often a symbol of female genitalia in this period it's a very common conceit and uh, she's describing how normally a lock would open an oyster uh, which is a symbol of a phallus and at one point she replaces it with a tide so the idea is it's not necessarily a lock opening an oyster but something else more watery more interesting and and these are really interesting lines of poetry and uh, they are genuinely quite radical even if they just sound really literary and need a lot of unpacking now but at one point when the play was edited in the 19th century the 19th century editor took them out so he could definitely see that they were radical. And she also wrote a lot of other plays, which you've just mentioned earlier, weren't actually performed during her lifetime, at least we think. Did these tackle any other radical subjects? Yeah, so you could actually make an argument that her plays tackle some of her most radical subjects. She is always writing about women who either retreat from the world and decide they don't want any men, or women who make fun of men, women who are able to propose a world in which they don't have to get married and that isn't the natural course of their life. So women who want to retreat and learn, women who want to retreat and enjoy each other's company. Um, And in all of these plays, they're not just doing it without really talking about it. There's always a lot of discussion about how marriage is considerably worse deal for a woman than it is a man and they have whole debates and discourses over whether the women really argue whether really marriage to a man is the worst thing that could possibly happen to them and she's not always saying yes it is she's always positing other ideas but you have this really strong sense of debate um where like the nature of being a woman as a separate gender and sex class is being considered and really philosophized one of her best plays which is really fun and genuinely incredibly interesting to read it's called Bell and Campo which is uh, a play about a group of women whose husbands are all going off to fight in a war which is a civil war so you can see where this comes from in her life and they decide they're going to go and they're going to set up their own camp and fight too and um, they have like she generals Amazonian warriors and they end up winning a battle for the men 
Um, and it's really interesting because you can kind of see it just as a figment of her imagination, a riot of imagined feminism. But it actually has a lot of relevance to what was happening at the time because Henrietta Maria was a very strong queen who had been very involved in the civil wars. So um, it's interesting as a historical record too. One assertion in your book that really surprised me was the fact that Margaret wrote science fiction, a genre widely believed to have been invented by Mary Shelley, who wasn't born until over a century afterwards. How did she contribute to this space? So yeah, Mary Shelley, Frankenstein, everyone thinks probably the beginning of science fiction. They're all wrong. So The Blazing World comes out in 1666. And so this is where Margaret Cavendish is very well known, very well known as an author, but also slightly reviled as being... People thought she was a bit crazy and perhaps not in a bid to try and make them think she was any less crazy. She comes out with this work called The Blazing World, um, which is the best way of describing it, perhaps, is like it's another utopian proto-feminist tract. So what happens is that a woman gets kidnapped, gets rescued and then eventually goes through on a ship through kind of a bizarre kind of tunnel thing into another world which is connected to our world at the North Pole and it's hard to explain but it makes a lot of sense in the book and she ends up in this new world and she is picked up by these men who are kind of like anthropomorphic animal half man half animal like figures and they revere her as an empress and she eventually ends up marrying the emperor and becomes the empress the entire like controller and dictator of this world the emperor kind of recedes into the background and she goes around this world asking all of these anthropomorphic men lice man ant men loads and loads of them ice men as well asking them all questions about the world because she's really interested as a scientist and philosopher and these men come back to her and they explain things and she thinks oh do i believe that or do i believe something else she's she's a thinly veiled stand-in for margaret cavendish herself as like an intellectual woman who wants to be in control who's finding things out about the world and then at one point the empress says i really need somebody who can write down my my life i need somebody who can write down my thoughts and can record them and then she goes should i have aristotle and then the i think i can't remember what type of anthropomorphic man it is at that point but they turn to her or it might be some spirits and they turn to her and they go oh no you can't have any famous men because they'll only want to write down their own thoughts not yours and she goes maybe some contemporary men they go no 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 don't do that they'll never let you write what you want to write and she goes what about margaret cavendish the duchess of newcastle and they're like great decision absolutely great decision so they go back into the normal world get margaret cavendish's spirit so it leaves her body in a bizarre way it's quite an interesting point because cavendish had very uh, interesting beliefs about whether spirits could leave bodies but at this point they probably could because the spirit goes back into the world attached to the other world and begins to write down all of the life for the empress and that is the book we're actually reading so it's incredibly meta and it is an amazing work of science fiction because you have all of the des- descriptions of ships that can harness the power of storms ice men lice men like just everything it's incredibly richly imagined other world and then the empress and margaret cavendish end up having like almost spiritual sex uh, so it's another moment where there is a really interesting depiction of lesbian desire but it's kind of spiritual so disembodied sex and also it's kind of sex with herself it's a masturbatory fantasy but it's completely brilliant and at one point the duke of newcastle so william is mentioned and then the empress goes oh he can't be sad because i'm only another woman and you're like okay <laughs> great does that does that count <laughs> um but it's completely brilliant and it's also one of her works which i would say is um quite accessible to read i mean it's available in edited editions and it's like great fun to to have a go at 
And as well as a pioneering writer, Margaret was also a philosopher, which you discuss in the book. What was her contribution to science and philosophy? Yeah, so I've probably like breadcrumbed it a bit with The Blazing World and some of her early poems. So Margaret Cavendish wrote philosophy and science from her very earliest work, her earliest published work, which is Poems and Fancies, which comes out in 1653. And here she begins describing the world as if it were all able to break down into atoms. So everything in the world can be reduced to an atom. And this is a type of Epicurean atomism, which was really popular in the time in Europe, uh, but not hadn't necessarily found its way into English thought, English scientific or mainstream thought. And Margaret Cavendish becomes very interested in it and starts writing it up. And there is a chance we can credit her with, you know, bringing it to a wider audience, even though people didn't really enjoy it when they read it in her work. But this was kind of really more radical than it sounds because in suggesting that everything can be broken down to atoms and these atoms just move around incredibly randomly everything's done off chance it's kind of a very dangerous theological argument you're suggesting perhaps that god doesn't actually have control over the world and so she gets herself into hot water over this and she also describes the atoms as being kind of controlled by fairies so that something really interesting is going on here and then by her later work she starts writing philosophical and physical opinions is another one of her works and by this point we start changing away from a purely atomic materialist view that is that everything in the world is reduced down to matter to something which we now call vitalist materialism which sounds incredibly complex but it isn't really so it's the idea that everything in the world is made out of different types of matter there are three types of matter Margaret Cavendish says and that some of these types of matter have the ability to move themselves and control the other types of matter so you have the idea that everything in the world is reducible down to like think constituent parts, but some of these are able to control their own movement and things. So it is definitely theologically really difficult. And Cavendish is always trying to deal with that and always trying to suggest that actually she promises she is a Christian. At other points, it's really, really debatable, really interesting. And I think a lot of the time she's trying to cover her back over that. And this is kind of really difficult to explain because it is so unlike what we would read now, unlike a lot of the early modern philosophy that is studied. But it was kind of the age of the educated amateur. Everyone was trying things out. And so much of the philosophy we have from this period is, you know, nobody believes in some of the more ridiculous theories that people did propose about matter and how everything, Descartes proposes that everything reduces down to different individual corpuscles. Nobody believes that anymore, but we do still read it and still engage with it because it teaches us a lot about early modern thought, for example. Um, But people haven't really read Cavendish because for ages she wasn't really available in edited editions and her work is quite hard to read. And it's clear that this is a woman who obviously made a substantial contribution to the intellectual world, despite a lack of education, which made her subject to great criticism, which you discuss in the book. If Margaret had a more traditional and substantial education, do you think she would be in the literary canon today? I became really fascinated by her education. So in her autobiography, she describes how, you know, she didn't really have that much education in writing or reading. Her brothers had tutors and she was instructed in dancing and needlework, which was really common for women of the period. Although there are some women who describe being able to read Latin and Greek, that by the time they're six, one of those women is Lucy Hutchinson, who's on the other side of the civil war debate. And you can argue that a more reformed theology did put more emphasis on educating daughters. But Cavendish didn't have that. But she did ask her brother if there was ever anything that really interested her. 
and she couldn't explain it. And then this continues later on into her life because her husband and his brother, Charles Cavendish, almost set up a mini academy for her. So they get microscopes, they get models of the universe with all of the planets and scale. They're spending vast sums of money on this when they really don't have that much money at the time. And they teach her so much about the world, about how to structure thoughts. So her very earliest writing, which is actually published a bit later on, because she leaves it in Antwerp when she goes back to London, is called The World's Olio. And in it, she discusses what her husband has said about one thing and what she believes. And it's really interesting because even from the earliest parts of her education, you can see that she's thinking for herself. But her education is incredibly patchy, but we can't really say that that's, it's not really that different for loads of women and lots of men at the time as well. But she did learn quite a lot and has amazing access to this whole intellectual world. Her husband is Thomas Hobbes' patron, for example. Uh, she sits in at a dinner where Hobbes and Descartes are discussing together and another philosopher called Pierre Gassendi. She is sitting in at that dinner, although she claims she can't speak any French, so we don't exactly know how much she would have understood. But they own also an amazing wealth of manuscripts, including Christine de Pizan's uh, very famous selection of her manuscripts in which she's writing about the City of Ladies. Although this is why maybe a lot of people don't believe that she actually couldn't read French because there are, is evidence that she had read this manuscript. But So her education is incredibly patchy, but it's also quite rich. And I think it made her a really interesting thinker because so often she comes at issues from a point of view which is so different to so many other thinkers in her day and age it also makes it quite difficult to read because occasionally she'll use terms and it will be a term which is in use in a lot of other early modern philosophy for example she's often talking about spirits and if you hear that word you normally think of something very incorporeal so a kind of either something that was meant to be in a body and has left it or a disembodied force she means it as a material force and she later writes a note being like I've changed my language because nobody understood and you're like well maybe they just thought exactly what you didn't mean because you're using language in a bizarre way but so I think it makes her really occasionally makes her quite a difficult thinker to read but it does I think make her an incredibly interesting one and I think maybe such a hard question to answer because I think we get so much from her non-traditional education the way that she approaches life so differently and her confidence perhaps in publishing uh, her confidence in displaying her own thoughts but I don't know if maybe she had received a more traditional education if people would be more more willing to um to engage with her but hopefully that's changing and at the center of this fascinating life we've discussed is what you describe as a difficult love story with William Cavendish why was it so difficult yeah so it's actually um such a lovely story in so many ways so they meet while they're both in exile at Henrietta Maria's court initially in Paris and then they they move and she describes him turning up at court and he's got like three horses or something beautiful carriage and he gives the horses away to the queen as like a gesture of his wealth at the time he's actually incredibly broke and got the horses on credit and this was just another grand gesture to get him more credit so he could borrow more money and she falls in love with this very flamboyant man she's like oh he looks kind of fun and then he really likes her and she says that he likes her despite the fact she was so bashful they eventually get married at a chapel over there and we don't really know who's in attendance but before they get married uh, we have this most brilliant beautiful resource which is her love letters to him that she wrote during their courting and in return so he wrote her poems and he wrote something ridiculous like over 70 poems which means that he was writing more than one day for the entirety of their courting and she wrote these letters back and she has some of the worst handwriting I have ever come across in an archive they're just it's just absolutely abysmal but she's aware of this and she writes at the bottom of one of the letters very early on pray do not 
leave the fault of my handwriting on me but blame it on the pen it's just such a lie because she clearly changes pen later and her handwriting is still awful but they were courting illicitly because in order to get permission for Margaret to marry she would have to have permission of the queen and that wasn't something they could necessarily rely on and so it starts off on difficult but but it's very clear from their early love letters that there's a huge degree of love on William's side it's slightly more physical so he writes this amazing amazing poem bear in mind he's 30 years older than her he writes this amazing poem where he goes old and dry wood makes the best fire uh, which is hilarious and at another point he writes a poem about her hymen and she has to remind him that they can't have sex until after they're married hilarious genuinely absolutely hilarious and she writes these letters being like oh you, you're damaging my health with all of your writing poetry to me because I have to wake up so early to get the letters back to you and it's clear that they're already in love so then they marry and then they go to uh Antwerp and they're living at Rubens house so the artist Rubens house but he's uh they rent it off his widow and they're staying in this gorgeous beautiful house and William Cavendish had been married once before and had three daughters and two sons from this first marriage and his sons weren't particularly well it was an age in which sons obviously were dying in fighting as well and he really needed another heir and so Margaret Cavendish writes in her autobiography that she was aware that this was one of the reasons that he had married her was the desire for another heir and it becomes increasingly clear that she cannot get pregnant at all and she starts taking these cures for her infertility a receipt for infertility that she injects every day and she cannot get pregnant at all and they eventually have to come to terms with that she writes a really heartbreaking note in her autobiography that William didn't love her any the less because she couldn't have children I became really quite fascinated by this idea when I was doing research because there are so many women for whom this was a problem and there's a lot of writing about it which hasn't necessarily had a lot of attention paid to it but either women writing about you know miscarriages very early baby loss or loss of the children which happens so often but just because it happens so often doesn't make it any less tragic and also women who were dealing with infertility a number of women wrote like spiritual memoirs describing how they prayed every day for a baby and they thought it was a fault in not a medical fault they thought it was a spiritual fault they thought it was a punishment from god um which is really really tragic uh, and it's really sad and i became really really interested by this so margaret cavendish is actually quite radical in that she appears not to mind so much so she writes these she has a collection called sociable letters which is letters that are written to an imagined female correspondent and she writes letters about how she hates pregnant women she thinks they're just you know taking up so much attention when they're wheezing around with their big bellies and buying new things for their babies and she kind of approaches it with a a real degree of comedy which I think is really lovely and she also describes her books as her babies which is really touching as well because she does actually call them her babies on a number of different occasions and uh, at one point she calls her publisher a bad midwife because they failed to correct her spelling errors which I think is hilarious but still on her tomb in an epitaph which was written by her husband he describes her as having no issue um, so it was obviously still something he thought about so I just think it's this really interesting picture of kind of medical history which we could probably perhaps pay more attention to and also the the extreme emotion that was tied up in it. As we begin to close the podcast, in light of all we've discussed, it seems almost obvious that Margaret is a feminist. Why should we be hesitant in lauding her as such? So I think throughout the book, I'm talking a lot about feminism and I'm always trying to uh, caveat it, which I think is really interesting because, you know, she dies in 1673. We don't really have you know, first feminist, for example, if you take it as Mary Wollstonecraft, I would argue that you could probably actually trace feminist 
fought in a coherent way further back and definitely include Margaret Cavendish in it. And I became quite wary of using the term proto-feminist because I didn't want to imply that these women all existed before like a contemporary ideal of feminism because then you can describe so many people as proto-feminist. You could describe women in the 1970s as proto-feminist because they don't fit with our idea of feminism now. So I became really wary of that because I felt like it was a bit dishonest. But I think people are also very wary of saying that Cavendish was a feminist because her feminism is quite difficult. She's also criticising quite a few women. It's also a very royalist, you know, upper class, aristocratic view of feminism as well, which is really interesting. And, you know, it's not necessarily including everyone from the period. But I think that we can perhaps laud her as like a forerunner in feminist thought or an early woman who we should definitely read more of and be appreciative of. Um, So I think you have to approach it with caveats. You have to be very wary of being historically inaccurate. But I think we're doing ourselves a disservice if we insist upon calling her a proto-feminist or we're doing ourselves a disservice if we insist upon cutting all of these very early uh, women who thought about women as a sex or women's rights or everything that was deserved of women or what was difficult in women's lives. We're doing history a disservice if we cut them out of feminism and the history of feminism. And finally, considering the often confusing nature of this woman, how should we remember her today? I think she'd love to be remembered as a radical, as a forerunner and as completely brilliantly original and somebody who should have a lot more attention paid to her. That was Francesca Peacock, writer, arts journalist and the author of Pure Wit, The Revolutionary Life of Margaret Cavendish. Francesca's book is out now, published by Head of Zeus. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.